I invite you to turn in your copies of the Scriptures to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Our text today will be verses 9 through 13. And the title of the sermon today, The Necessity of the Reformation, and I've appended to that the words yesterday and today. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Hear the very words of God. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I do not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, Your Son came to redeem a people unto Himself. That people whom You chose from before the foundations of the earth. That people who would be called by Your name. That people who You shown salvation to through Your Son, by and through the Holy Spirit and the Word which we handle and was made flesh. We come before You this day asking You to illumine us in the ways of our Savior, that truly we might be reformed, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we might do what is that good and perfect will of God, that we might be a light in a dark world, that we might give living water to those who are thirsty, that we might show forth the glories of Christ in salvation as You have shown them to us. May we show them to others. And as we look at this passage today, Lord, and a few others, we pray that You would goad us truly goad us to love and good works. And we ask this in the name of our Savior and Lord. Amen. Well, brethren, today I intended to preach an historical message regarding the events leading up to the 16th century Reformation. Given that we are two weeks away from the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's famous salvo against the Church of Rome, the 95 Theses nailed to the, the uh, church door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. We shall consider some of those things that necessitated the dawning of that movement today, but only in part. Last evening, the Boniface Brotherhood met here for a fine barbecue, thanks to our dear brother Lawrence McCord, and a stimulating conversation goaded by our dear brother Ken Patrick. I want to thank those two men for their work, and and last evening. 
Our fellowship last evening, if anything, was stimulating. Stimulating. The 18 men who gathered lamented the state of our culture and how it has turned so quickly to barbarity and paganism, casting off the Christian moorings which uh, were the bedrock of the founding of our nation. We lamented the apathy of the church in the face of this sin-filled culture and the corresponding impotence of the church to speak with one voice against the godless idolatry of the day. We also acknowledged with great dread the lack of wisdom and discernment within our own ranks as to how we as God's people should respond both to protect our families and our progeny as well as effectively be salt and life to the world. To be sure, we all agreed that the avalanche, the raging fire, the tsunami of paganism that is sweeping over us will one day pass. And in its wake, the church of Jesus Christ will remain standing because our Lord Jesus has clearly told us that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. That church that He spoke of is us. We are the ecclesia, those called out by God to a new hope, a living hope. We are the apple of God's eye. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, God's own special people, as the Apostle Peter teaches us in his first epistle, the second chapter. And because we are all those things, God's providential mighty hand and outstretched arm will preserve his church. He is our mighty fortress, our high tower, our strong deliverer. One of the most encouraging things I witnessed last evening was the profound and sincere concern the men of our church showed for the lost. In all the years of my ministry, both as a ruling elder and a teaching elder, I have not heard the men of our church express that concern so very clearly and sincerely as they did last evening. The unity of that shared concern for the lost does not come except by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And last evening may have been a turning point in our church. Excuse me, brother. Brethren, in some ways, the days in which we live are very much like the days of Martin Luther in the early 16th century. Today, I want us to consider some of the similarities as well as some of the very profound differences and then suggest three beginning points to focus on as we endeavor to glorify God in our actions, hoping to reach those lost for which concern was shown last evening in the midst of such a dark and pagan culture. It is our job to point them to the light, the light, the light of the world, our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. So let's first consider a few similarities and then dissimilarities. One similarity is that there is a great indifference in the church towards sin and iniquity. 
And such was the case in the time of Martin Luther's day. The church had become cloistered as it has today, withdrawing from the culture, not giving forth a very clear message of repentance and faith, the Gospel. It has become detached from society and the needs of the common man. In Martin Luther's day, they had unparalleled access to learning on the heels of the Renaissance, as we have today as well. The opportunity to learn more and different things is infinite for us today. It was not infinite in Luther's day, but it certainly had blossomed following the Renaissance. It, in his day, it was a day, a, a day of unparalleled technology up until that point. Gutenberg had produced the first movable type press and all kinds of writings would be circulated throughout Europe. The profound numbers of humanities, humanity whose wills were in bondage to sin and death are matched by today. These are but a few of the many similarities. Yet in our day, there are some dissimilarities that we must take note of. Consider these few but important dissimilarities. We live in an age of relative ease and affluence, but that was not the case in Luther's day. In our day, many mortal diseases have been eradicated and life expectancies have increased dramatically. I just heard this past week at the Conference on Reformation Worship that one in five women would not live past a few days after birth as they gave birth in Martin Luther's day. Full 20% of all women would die in childbirth. Very few men live past their 21st birthday. But if they did, they could probably expect to live to 50 or 60 years of age. But those men were few in number. Today, food, clean water, and shelter are abundant. Not in Luther's day. It was on the heels of the great plague, the bubonic plague. And all of Europe had been decimated by the plague. As many as 50% of the entire population, it's estimated, could have passed during the time of the plague. Though we are not as literate a population as we should be in our own day, the literacy rates today far exceed the mere 2 to 5% of the early 16th century. And though the need for reformation certainly exists in the church, today the threats to Christendom come from the pagan world, and they are far more acute than the threats from the apathetic and anemic church of the 21st century. This last dissimilarity is without doubt the greatest dissimilarity between the two times. In Luther's day, the threat really was from within the church. In our day, the threat to Christianity is from without. 
Our day more closely approximates the early days of the church in Rome rather than the days of the 16th century Europe. So brethren, we must most assuredly live in a post-Christian era when a society jettisons the tether to its Christian moorings, jettisons that tether, it floats on the seas of barbarous paganism, and that's what we see all around us. That society knows only self-indulgence, devoid of God's law word. Liberty becomes license. Freedom becomes slavery to sin and death. And unfortunately, we who name the name of Christ, we become targets for destruction because we are the very personification of the body of Christ. We are the antithesis. Whether we like it or not, whether we are faithful or not in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, our very existence is an offense to the ungodly, and thus we are a target for their collective wrath. In the Roman Empire, in the early days of the church, Caesar understood that the Christians were a threat to his empire because they served another god. Brethren, we are a threat to the wicked and absent a reformation in our day brought by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will suffer as the early church suffered. But please, never forget this. The early church prevailed as it remained faithful to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this brings me to the three specific areas of our lives in which I believe, and I think the men that met last evening also believe, would constitute a starting point for our small church to survive the tsunami of wickedness that is overtaking us. And I want to begin with our Lord's examples. For after all, aren't we supposed to become like our Savior? Are we not supposed to be conformed to His image? So what He does and what He did, we are to do likewise. The three things are by no means the only things that we should employ, but they are, I believe, essential starting points for effective gospel living in the age in which we live. So I want, to, I want you to think about the life of Christ. He was born humbly uh, to humble parents. Uh, he was born miraculously to the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, as we've confessed already. So he's an unusual young man. But he grew up in their home, and the Bible says he waxed strong and was filled with the Spirit in his youth. And the first real descriptions of his ministry we see in Matthew chapter 3. And that's where we see Christ's baptism. Today we're going to witness a baptism. But I want us to think about Christ's baptism first. Baptism is an outward expression of at least two realities in the kingdom of God. First, Jesus' baptism inaugurated his ministry to the world. He didn't need his sins forgiven. He didn't have any to forgive. So why was he baptized? 
For what purpose was he baptized? Brethren, his baptism was a sign and seal of a covenant with the Father. An eternal covenant with the Father. Wherein the church of which Jesus is the head is set apart in the world for a holy use through the power of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the outward sign and seal of that covenant. Yes, it represents for us the washing of regeneration and the renewing of our spirits, but for Christ, it represented a covenant relationship with the covenant-keeping God. That covenant would be reaffirmed when Christ institutes the Lord's table, and I'll speak about that when we take communion later today. Today, as I said, we are going to witness the covenantal promise of God applied to a covenant child of the church of which Christ in his baptism was the first fruits. The first fruits of the church. Baptism is a sanctifying action of God upon us whereby he is setting us apart for a holy use. And we know this to be the case because he gives us his name. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We now, in our having been baptized, we now bear the very name of God. And so we are the antithesis to the world around us. It's not something we are still becoming, though we are becoming more like the image of Christ, but we are already that thing by virtue of being set apart for holy use in covenant baptism. As we bear the name of God before the world, we necessarily, necessarily bear the life of Christ before the world. Jesus was baptized, and immediately after his baptism, what happens? Matthew chapter 4, he goes to the wilderness for 40 days. For what purpose? To fast and pray. To fast and pray. Jesus went to the wilderness by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, Matthew's Gospel tells us. And if I am correct with what I observed last evening, the collective desire to honor God in the doing of the work of the kingdom by the men of our church, we would do well to follow our Lord's example with prayer and fasting. Before he preached his first sermon, before he confronted his, the first unbeliever, before he called out the first disciple to, to follow him, he went before his father and fasted and prayed and devoted himself wholly to that for a significant amount of time. Brethren, we acknowledged last evening we need wisdom. We need discernment. And in the epistle of James, we have very clear instructions as to the necessity of asking God for wisdom 
James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God promises to give us the, the wisdom and discernment that we lack, but we must go and ask. We must humble ourselves before the God of the universe who has all wisdom and all discernment. And He will give it out liberally to those who come to Him by faith, seeking that wisdom. Furthermore, James later in his letter reminds us in chapter 4 of this important concept. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. The interesting thing about that passage, gentlemen, from last night, I mentioned it last night, I'm mentioning it again now, it's in James 4. It's in the midst of all the sexual immorality of that day. When we need wisdom, we do it in a context. And guess what? The context is no different than in the days of James. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. But lest we forget those 40 days that Christ spent in the wilderness, the the breadth of the importance of those days, Jesus, before He began His ministry in earnest, He fasted as well. He didn't just spend time in prayer. He denied Himself and gave Himself holy over to the work of God. For 40 days he refrained from food that he might devote himself to prayer. And consider his clear teaching on fasting in Matthew chapter 6, verses 17-20 through and the benefits derived from God when we do fasting rightly. Hear these words from Matthew 6. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to be men fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, that word assuredly means verily, verily, I say to you, meaning truly, I say to you, this is the truth of the matter. They have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. That's what Jesus did. That's why He went to the wilderness to fast and pray. He went to do it in secret. To do it before the Father alone. That the Father may reward Him openly in His ministry before Israel. Brethren, living covenantally in light of our baptisms and devoting oneself to prayer and fasting, these are the things that precede ministry to others because those were the things that preceded Christ's ministry to others. We must be holy even as the God-man was holy. Therefore, we must be set aside with the name of God and the demeanor of God the Son if ever we hope to be effective for His kingdom. These are things we must do ourselves, with ourselves, to set ourselves apart for a holy purpose.
But now let us focus our attention on the passage that I read at the beginning. Here again these words of Christ. As Jesus passed from there, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and He said to him, Follow Me. So He arose and followed Him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Him and His disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to His disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When Jesus came out of the wilderness to do the work of the kingdom, He sought out those who were in need of healing. And these people weren't, didn't have just any kind of disease. They had eternally, eternally mortal diseases. Sin and death. Eternally mortal diseases. Those kinds of diseases that separate man from God for eternity. We shudder and shake at the diseases we see in our, uh, in our midst. Cancers of all sorts. Uh, heart conditions. Uh, all kinds of things uh, that, that threaten our lives. Brethren, those are temporal things. Jesus came to be the physician for eternal mortal diseases. Sin and death. Our text says that he sought out Matthew, calling him to follow him. He said, follow me, and Matthew drops what he's doing, and he walks behind Jesus. Now, I I don't want to presume that any of us have that kind of power over men to walk into a tax collector's office and say, follow me. Though, as despised as tax collectors are even in our day, it might happen. But when Jesus said that to Matthew... It wasn't just that he was relieving him of his duties as a tax collector. He was taking his sins away. And he called Matthew. Matthew didn't seek him. He sought Matthew. That's the first lesson we learned from this passage. Now notice then that Jesus goes to a house and sits at a table... And Matthew's cohorts come and sit down to eat with him. Men just like Matthew. Tax collectors and sinners. And they go there because, likely, Matthew said, you've got to meet this fellow. You have got to meet this guy. And Jesus sat with them and ate with them and shared the gospel with them. Jesus did not despise these men. He sought them out. The third thing we learn from this passage is Jesus met with them over a meal. In other words, He met them in their everyday lives. 
in the very necessities of life. How many times did Christ feed multitudes? Over and over again. At least twice that we know of huge multitudes. Three and five thousand people. And he was intentional to become part of their lives to the very point of breaking bread with them. I mentioned last night to the men, very few times in the Gospels do we see Jesus not having meals with people. Most of the time we see the accounts of Jesus' life, He's eating with people. Sometimes it's the covenant people of God. Other times it's the wicked, just like here. But how else are they going to see the light of the world unless the light goes to them? They have no penchant for light. They live in darkness and love it, the Scriptures tell us. It's of necessity that we take the light to them. And of course, Jesus' critics bemoan the fact that He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And in verses 10 and 11, Jesus answers His critics, with the summation of what, is, what it means to do the work of the kingdom. Hear this clearly, brethren. This is the summation of what it means to do the work of the kingdom. Jesus heard and He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Why did I choose this passage as it relates to the Reformation? Well, there is a reason I chose this passage. That last statement ends with the word repentance. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There is a translation of the Bible called Young's Literal Translation, which many scholars believe is the most literal translation of the Scriptures. The most literal. It translates that word repentance this way. Reformation. Reformation. So it would be right to read it this way. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to reformation. Isn't that what Luther did with the Roman church? Didn't he call the Roman church to reformation? To throw off its idolatries, of which they were many, and put on the glorious clothing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, repentance is reformation. We need a new reformation. It's of necessity. I call you to join with me in a fast and prayer for that kind of reformation where we walk into a tax collector's office and share the Gospel and he leaves forgiven. 
We say, invite your friends. I want to eat dinner with them. And we share the gospel. And they come to the knowledge, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of reformation we need. And that's what Jesus did. We are to be conformed to His image. Let's follow in our Lord's steps. Conforming ourselves to Him, His image. Calling men and women to a new reformation. And thus, becoming, once again, the salt and light to the world. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Like the stick with a point on the end, it goads us to repentance and to faith, greater faith. It goads us to love and good works. I pray that Your people would be bathed in the Word of God, compelled by the Holy Spirit to take that Word to others, and trust You and You only for the increase. May we all be given to those notions, Lord. May we before we take that Word to others, fast and pray, knowing that the effectual fervent prayers of righteous men will avail much, but only because You've promised it, Lord. Help us to live out Your promises in that way. Help us not to despise the ordinary means of grace, but to trust that You will use them to the converting of sinners to Your Son Jesus, to the advancing of His kingdom, and the pillaging of Satan's kingdom. We pray, Father, for traitors to Satan's kingdom. That they would abandon that darkness and come to the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. And Father, help us to call them, to stand with them as they leave that kingdom of Satan, and to guide them into the righteous kingdom of Jesus Christ. Give us new, renewed vigor, Lord. Help us to improve upon our baptisms as our catechisms teach us. Reflecting upon the fact that we've been given the name of God and that we, we live and move in that name and have been promised the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work that attends that name. You've spoken everything into existence. Nothing exists 
without your word, and nothing is sustained without your word. And so, Lord, as we bear your name, may we use your word as effectively as you do. Give us the grace to do that by and through the power of your Spirit. Father, we ask that You would preserve Your people. You are our high tower. You are a mighty fortress. And Your strong arm and Your mighty hand works to the benefit of Your people. Not only does it protect us, but it builds us up into a holy house, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Your own special people that Your Son would be glorified on this earth as well as in the heavenlies. And we look forward to the day that we are added to the number of the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us into a number that cannot be counted that sing and proclaim Your praises for eternity. Help us not to despise persecution, Lord but to look upon it as our Savior did. He did not despise persecution, but endured it knowing that in the end, the hope of salvation would be poured out among us. And Father, as we are persecuted, help us to embrace the notion that Your Son is glorified in it, that You are glorified in it, that others will see and believe because of it. And that Your kingdom will advance and Satan's kingdom diminish. So Father, we pray for the, the life of the world. That You would draw men and women to Your Gospel. that You would do it supernaturally even when we are impotent. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ would be magnified as His body grows.